BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 183, part two of Dr. Baraki and I answer questions from the internet. These are questions that you submitted to Austin's Q&A on his Instagram. So if you don't follow Austin, it's Austin underscore Barbell Medicine. I'm Jordan underscore Barbell Medicine. We do this from time to time. where We solicit questions from our audience and, uh, you know, we answer them here on the podcast. So uh, maybe some more of that in the future. We got a research review coming out and a few other interesting podcast topics for this month of July, 2022. Uh, before we hop into this week's podcast, a few announcements. One, our app is still live. It's still free. It's still in the Apple app store. Uh, a number of cool upgrades have happened. Uh, so one, if you're on the fence about any of our templates, um, which is one of the features of the app, you get all of our templates on there. You can try out any of our templates for free. The first week is there for free. Um, so just you get a sense of the training. Do you like it? Do you like the format? Um, does it jibe with what your current goals goals are. Uh, we also have the strongman uh, template in there uh, for free, a full strongman template that was designed by uh, Alan Thrall and myself. And uh, we also have a template picker tool. So if you're wondering, hey, what template should I pick? I need to change up my program, need to change up my routine. We basically took my brain, turned it into an algorithm, and uh, it helps you pick templates. So that's in there for free as well. In any case, let's not waste any more time before we hop into this week's podcast. Again, episode 183 answering questions from the internet with Dr. Austin Baraki. Let's go. Okay, next question. What is something you do mentally that enhances your training longevity? Um, something we do mentally that enhances training longevity. I don't know that I've ever thought about this from my own perspective. Like, what are the things I do consciously uh, that has led me to train for over a decade? Or well, in this case, compete for over a decade, training for longer than that. Um, I, I really like it. I mean, if I'm honest, I really do enjoy training. I enjoy the, every part about the process of training, thinking about training, manipulating variable, like that is all I like it. And then I obviously like the results. So I, I think there's some sort of selection bias here and people that have been training for a long period of time and maybe like make it part of their career on some level. It's like, it'd be very difficult to get into resistance training and have no success, like be a low responder or non-responder to resistance training. And then be like, yeah, but I'm going to dedicate my life to this, and be a <laughs> you know, yeah. a trainer. It, Cause it's just like, you're like, dude, what am I doing? Just find um, something else. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. 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 Maybe find another athletic outlet. But so I think, you know, that's how I got into it. Like I, I started training. I started seeing like 
results and I really enjoyed that process and I got hooked. I got bit by the bug. So I've never had to like really think about, well, how am I going to like make this last for the next 20 years, 30 years, whatever. I think what's happened over time is that I found ways to get through the lulls in training, right? Because sometimes you're hot and sometimes you're not. And when the getting's good, you just you keep going. You're like, man, I'm PRing every week. I'm, I'm on one, as Drake would say. Mm-hmm. But uh, other times you're like, yeah, I don't know. For whatever reason, either the programming and my current life stress, my current you know, environment is not conducive to like making gains. So how do you get through that? Uh, and I think just having the perspective that can, that is, is really only created through kind of time (laughs) when you kind of can see the bigger picture. Uh, I think that's probably the, the, the thing that I've, you know, developed the most, like if I go through three months without setting a PR, okay. Like it's three, it's three months. It's like nothing, you know, um, if the rate of improvement is slower, that's fine. I, I still like training, um, just the, the challenge of it, of showing up and, and it's just part of my life, uh, for clients. I've thought about this a lot more though. And, and I think the biggest shift that's happened probably in both of our approaches coaching wise over the last, I don't know, three years, four years or whatever has been to really get more personal preference involved in the prescription. You know, it doesn't always have to be squat, bench, deadlift, or variations thereof. It doesn't always have to be choosing or prioritizing maximal low velocity strength. It could be other goals. And I don't think that when we were coaching before, if people were like, look, I'm a track and field athlete, like, you know, how should I train? And we're like, starting strength, boom, there you go. (laughs) Like, I don't, I don't think that's where we defaulted to, but I do think kind of removing our bias our personal, our personal preferences from, from training has happened more and more and more over time as we've seen that there are many different ways to get stronger, many indirect mechanisms of improving performance and things we think are important. So things we think are important, maximal strength, power production, lean body mass, cardiorespiratory fitness. It's like, there's so many ways to do this. Like we don't have to mandate a particular way to program. And I think if people are enjoying it, which is probably priority number one for us for adherence, and we're managing stress levels, training stress levels, that sets somebody up for a long, productive training career, and also a a good health trajectory relative to exercise. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do. So none of those are mental approaches, really, like, what am I thinking about? Or what am I having the client think about? Um, I know previously you've spoken, especially with relation to some of your athletes that, that compete is like being process oriented versus outcome oriented. Do you want to talk about that? Cause I, I know we, we say it a lot, but what does that look like? You know, if you're coming into a session and you're like, I don't know, what would be the differences between being process oriented versus yeah. outcome oriented? Yeah. Unsurprisingly, you predicted where my answer was going to be on this, but that's really the main <laughs> thing that, that I feel like for myself that has enhanced the longevity uh, has been really being process oriented instead of outcome oriented. And, and the difference is um, enjoying the day to day work, as you described, you know, enjoying training. Definitely. I can I can relate to that. Looking forward to actually going in and doing it, doing the work and being less attached to the outcome, be it a PR set on some arbitrary date or something like that, or the absolute load that you lift on any particular day itself as maybe an outcome of interest uh, doesn't necessarily need to be the thing that has the most value attached to it. Um, 
and 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 so that shift in in kind of approach to training can be super helpful in general it leads to uh more enjoyment less burnout less frustration right because it's so easy to go in and to have a day where you don't hit some number that you want but it's very easy to go in and do some amount of work that leaves you you know feeling good about what you did or leaving the gym feeling better than when you walked in particularly if you don't crush yourself and you and you're intelligent about about your training and i felt fortunate to come into lifting you know i've already been you know lifting for well over a decade and but i came into it after over a decade of training for competitive swimming where i had to have a similar kind of approach because because just like in any athletic pursuit, there comes the point where, yeah, you're not really hitting PRs every week <laughs> anymore. Um, I know I trained all through, you know, my earlier years through high school and I was an okay swimmer. And then like my training volume and intensity and environment got way more intense in college. And so like my first year in college swimming, I was, I was, uh, that my team was joking because every single regular dual meet of the season, I was hitting like an all time PR, like PR, 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 because everything changed. But then obviously that tapered off as well, it slows down and you have to come to terms with, okay, am I getting worse? Um, is this, is this what I place all my value on is just these, these performance improvements or, um, enjoying the process, enjoying being in the training environment, putting the work in that, that feeling allows you to stay engaged and take the PRs when they come, because eventually that is no longer within your control as much as, as much as you want it to be. And so that mindset, that approach again, translated nicely for me when it came to powerlifting, even though based on the influences that we had earlier in our in our training career, I still kind of reverted a little bit to like putting too much emphasis on the numbers. And I think that that led to some foolish decisions early on that maybe set me back in terms of like, you know, some tendinopathy flare ups or some injuries or foolish programming decisions or something. Things that I obviously learned from and don't do don't do anymore such that now, as I mentioned in the training question earlier, like I care very little what the actual weight is on the bar in any given session. I kind of ride the waves up and down and just, you know, enjoy the process of going through training. And then when a PR happens to be there, if I can feel it like that big bench that I had a couple weeks ago, or this past week, a pause deadlift PR, then I'll, then I'll take it. And that actually gets me to the other part of my answer is, uh, uh, moving the goalposts a little bit. If 100, <laughs> if 100% of the value of my like value interest motivation for training was like one RM or five RM low bar squat, you know, bench press or you know, conventional deadlift or something, then yeah, it's going to get pretty tough and like monotonous and frustrating to keep going when you start hitting PRs like once a year or less or something like that, you know, because eventually that that can happen. Um, so instead, what I do is, uh, you know, I like choosing variations that are still, you know, big, heavy movements, something like that, but a variation on those main things. And in the past couple of years, now I can think back and I'm like, well, when low bar stuff slowed down, or I had some quad issues, I was able to rehab with high bar squats. And then boom, I worked back up and I said, you know, I think I can high bar squat 600. And then that went and that was a cool PR or bench was not doing great. I found that I could reverse grip bench. And I was like, oh, maybe I want to reverse grip bench over 405 or something and check that one off the list. Most recently, pause deadlift. I've been telling you for uh, had a little, the 700 pause deadlift in mind for a little while there, you know, I've deadlifted far in excess of that, uh, relatively speaking, but, um, you know, that breaking that PR is going to be a lot harder. It's going to take more time, but in the meantime, Hey, that was a cool experience this past week to, to do that with some made up variation. Um, switching, introducing SEMO and saying, Hey, let me see how good I can get at SEMO or, you know, any number of things that you can make up. And then if not those, then I suddenly shifted my rep range and I said, let me see what I can pull for a set of 10. Boom. 600 for 10 went up. <laughs> it's a made up arbitrary thing, but it was like, damn, that felt pretty cool to accomplish. And it keeps me engaged and motivated. And typically I start to formulate these ideas as I'm like in spitting distance of one of these things. And I'm like, all right, that'll keep me going for the next few weeks or months or whatever to work towards. And then hit that. And then I make up something else to keep going for. 
and those things all ultimately do have like, you know, knock on effects to the main lifts that I want to get better at um, indirectly or potentially longer term, but they're, you know, fun to, to chase in the short term and keep me going. Um, so those are like a couple things, the process oriented versus outcome oriented. And then, yeah, uh, uh, kind of moving the goalposts in various ways to stay engaged with the process and stay motivated and chasing something. Yep. I like that. My, the thing, the problem now in my training is that my current goal and priority is to get prepared and ultimately have a successful quote unquote motocross season. I'm doing yeah. this little, little series starting uh, next month. And so because the outcomes there are so complex and, you know, not only on dependent on you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm like, man, what, what am I, what am I doing? It's kind of, it's just abstract, you know? So yeah, I'm like, yeah. all right, I can push the conditioning. I can, you know, stay injury free and, and practice and then just hope for the best. So, yes. Yes. Control yep. the things you can. Yep. Yep. All right. Next question. What are your favorite slash least favorite medical conditions to work up in the hospital? <laughs> <laughs> like full disclosure, like I haven't been in the hospital since 2017. So this is definitely going to be an Austin heavy answer, which is good. I'm excited to hear this, but I'll just lead that my least favorite medical conditions to work up in the hospital uh, when I was in there were anything where there was a really strong social component that I could not fix. So this would be people coming in presenting with like a recurrence of a liver failure exacerbation or like hepatorenal syndrome or something like that. And they're homeless, you know, or, or, or housing insecure or something like that. And there's like a concomitant substance use, uh, uh, disorder. And it's like, all right, so we can buff you, you know, we can, we can tune you up, but, but then what, there's no way to like manage this appropriately because of the, the social, uh, uh, environmental issues that were just bigger than what we could handle in the hospital and the social workers and case managers and everything else were doing their best. But it's like, even in LA and even in a, uh, where I was training at UCLA, we have a lot of resources, but not enough. And so it's like, you're, you're doing the medicine and you're like, okay, I feel good about this, you know, academically. And, you know, uh, oh, we're doing all the right things here where we can control the setting, but like, then what? Uh, and then my favorite thing. So that's my least favorite. My favorite thing, uh, was actually like a DKA because these, these people come in like really, really, you know, out of sorts, and then you could, you know, in a pretty short period of time, complete turnaround, you know, and you're like, wow, look at what we did. <laughs> this, is this is amazing, um, especially on the pediatric wards, because it's like, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. You know, you, there's a lot of teaching that's involved, usually with the parents, with the the kids themselves um, and, and sort of it's very, very scary. And you kind of feel like you're saving the day, uh, which is rewarding, you know, and, and it's enough complexity that you're like you're really engaged. Um, and so that was, that was really cool. Uh, obviously you don't wish that on it, on anybody. Um, but at the same time, like it, it, it checked all my boxes, mm -hmm. high level, like acuity, a lot of medicine, and then like a lot of like teaching and, and engagement with multiple people in the family. Like that was all cool. And, and people feel better and have a plan going forward when they leave the hospital. So for me, those are like my favorite and my least favorite. Uh, I assume yours are going to be different. Probably not, probably not the peds <laughs> thing if I had to guess, but <laughs> yeah, from, from, I mean, for those who don't know, I work as a internal medicine doc, uh, mainly in the inpatient hospital setting. And so internists are uh, generally stereotyped as being enormous nerds, uh, who work with effectively all the different organ systems in, in, in some capacity or another. So, um, those who are in the know on this will be unsurprised to find that I have a difficult time picking some favorite ones. Uh, I would say that among the things that I enjoy evaluating and, uh, and managing are 
probably principally kidney related issues, uh, kidney dysfunction, kidney failure, and various electrolyte related issues, acid based disturbances, sodium issues, things like that. That's like probably one of our main things that we do most often. Other things I enjoy are like really complex hematologic disorders. So blood related disorders, um, uh, bone marrow issues, things like that. Um, I also get excited about uh, evaluating and teaching things related to certain heart-related conditions, electrocardiography, things like that, um, and then certain endocrine issues like adrenal disorders and things like that. Kind of are I find interesting, real real adrenal disorders. So yeah. <laughs> it it seems like like all of the the things that all of those have in common is that the differential, so the list of potential things that could be causing this or uh, contributing, are very very long, and so you have to do this like you know. Uh, detective uh, work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. To figure out what's going on. And so like, yeah. I, I can see how that's very, very stimulating. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I enjoy that. And the, the process of teaching like clinical reasoning, how do we think through this mm -hmm. process? What are the clues that are useful? What are the clues that we need to ignore? How does that inform our next steps and in, in, in diagnostics and management and things like that? And then many of these things are, you know, quite treatable once we arrive at a, at a particular diagnosis. Um, I think least favorite unequivocally is going to be something called uh, decompensated cirrhosis. Uh, yeah. So advanced liver failure and the complications thereof. Um, I've seen way more than that than I ever wanted to see and uh, feel like I still deal with it all the time and I am okay doing that. But uh, I, that's something that I find not super enjoyable, mainly just because of how gruesome and like just horrific it can be. Um, and so that's definitely one that I, that I don't prefer. Um, so a lot of things I like, not too many things that I, that I dislike in my particular field and I enjoy teaching all of it regardless. So that's like my favorite thing. Yeah. Uh, if you're curious, medically curious, particularly like how doctors think the book recommendation is actually called how doctors think by Jerome Grubman. It's a, pretty good read about, you know, how doctors are making clinical decisions and diagnostic and treatment decisions and stuff like that. Uh, my only suggestion, if you pick this book up is to not get the audiobook because holy cow, I, I have never been so close to passing out while driving <laughs> because the voice is so soothing, but yeah, good read. If you're curious about that at all. All right. Next question. What is the bigger flex, a self lift off on bench press or no wrist wraps? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think probably the self lift off is probably a bigger flex. So like at the meet, I just did this meet in May. Um, and I self lifted off and no wrist wraps. Uh, my third bench was 190 kilos. So for 22 or whatever. And I, and I was the only person in my whole flight doing a self handoff. Mm -hmm. And the reason I did it, it wasn't like I prefer a self lift off. I just got used to doing it. And that was part of my setup. I do. I think that having a lift off all the time from the same person, like a great would be better. Maybe it, I certainly would do less work, um, but I just got used to it. I wasn't trying to change it on meet day. Uh, the wrist wrap thing for me, I just was using wrist wraps in a way that wasn't really benefiting me. Like, I think I was using it to sort of feel more secure, even though I like my, my grip, even though I wasn't, um, and I wanted to not mask any symptoms in my shoulder by having like mm. a casted wrist. And sure. so I like kind of wanted to feel like, does my shoulder feel a little janky today? Like, do I need to mm -hmm. moderate the load? Uh, and so I haven't used wrist wraps since February, even though I've been using wrist wraps since 2014. Um, but nobody was like, bro, no wrist wraps. But people were like, bro, self handoff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. 
I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. I haven't used wrist wraps in many, many, many years at this point. I never felt like I got much out of them and don't feel like I'm missing out by not using them. So I am inclined to agree. The self-lift off, I feel like, is the bigger flex. It's, for me, it's something that I've had no choice but to do, training by myself in my garage for, for many years at this point, and had to develop the skill of how do I do an effective self-lift off um, with heavy PR-type weights uh, without losing positioning and tightness and things like that. And it's very doable at this point. Like, I just did it this past week with 420, which is just only, whatever, 35 pounds under my PR, so pretty pretty darn close. Um, and I did it with my actual PR a couple of weeks prior to that and and was able to maintain all positioning and scapular, all the, all the stuff that, you know, technique nerds <laughs> like to geek out on. Right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's just taking some practice and, ex- and experience of figuring out how to do that. So I, I agree. I think that's the bigger flex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was a guy that was arguing with Claire on the internet that like doing a self lift off was gonna damage your shoulders because you can't keep your scapulae retracted. And I'm like, okay, c- source citation, <laughs> anything? No, just your opinion. And you, don't, and, you and you know, yeah. Uh, okay, this will be fun. I, I I think the disparity in our answers here will be interesting, or at least the way that we go about it. So the question is, what does your typical daily diet look like? Uh, and I just. I don't know if you remember this, but I think in medical school, you were t- saying that your diet was like, if it fits the quesadilla, <laughs> you, you would just make a quesadilla and you would just like see what, what you could fit in it. That's funny. Rather than if it fits your macros. But uh, for my answer on this, I actually made a video on this, like what I eat in a day. And it looks very similar to that on a day-to-day basis um, when I'm preparing all the meals in my home. Um, I just adjust the amounts based on the current goal. So the goal at that time was weight gain. My current goal is weight loss. Cause I just think, uh, for motocross being a little lighter, bike handles a little bit better, a little bit easier, uh, to, uh, have a higher, uh, a cardiorespiratory fitness level at a, at a lighter body weight. So it's just a little bit less on the amounts. Um, but I typically eat what I ate in that video. Um, and I probably eat out two or three times a week, just depending on my social my social schedule, so to speak, but, uh, it's pretty regimented. I mean, you know, I, I count calories, uh, a couple times a week just to make sure that I'm not, um, you know, going too low or too high. And I'm mon- I, I monitor that along with my daily weight. And I think you just do the daily weight thing, but I don't, I don't know that you have a set diet other than like habitually what you fall into. Yeah, I think that I definitely have some approaches that differ from from yours. And this also ties into one of the other, the next question about uh, basically asking, are there any nutrition guidelines for anyone opting not to track calories while they're at maintenance? And so I'll kind of lump these together as far as what I do, because that is what I do. I do not count calories, never have, and don't have any interest in it either myself, neither calories nor, nor macros, really. I do have a sense of what foods contain primarily what type of macronutrient, I guess. So what foods tend to be more protein heavy, you know, fat, fat, carb, fiber, et cetera. Um, and so that kind of does guide some of my decisions, but I don't actually measure specific kind of amounts. I try to make sure that I get some, you know, decent slug of protein at, at each meal, um, the right amount of carbs for, you know, energy for, you know, training and things like that. And then fiber ideally across most meals as well. And then I don't really tend to worry too much about fat, except for not letting it get super high and picking my sources uh, in accordance with what we've recommended when it comes to, you know, cardiovascular risk and things like that. So my method of, uh, kind of, uh, uh, 
maintaining without tracking, I actually weigh myself typically twice a day, morning and after and uh, evening before bed. And the evening time weigh-in is mostly to make sure that I've not under-eaten that day, not for any other reason. So sometimes I'll weigh myself in the evening and I'm like, you know, typically you'll wake up at a given, you know, whatever your quote unquote dry weight is going to be <laughs> for, uh, in the morning. And then you're going to expect, obviously, over the course of the day, eating and drinking throughout the day that you'll gain whatever, some amount of weight for me, maybe it's, I don't know, two pounds, three pounds, something like that. And then I expect that those are going to disappear again overnight. And so I can kind of estimate what my next morning weight is going to be. And so if I've under eaten by the evening time way, then I'll go, go back downstairs, even if I'm not hungry and get something down to make sure that I'm not unintentionally losing weight. And then if I wake up in the morning heavier than I want to be, um, then I might, you know, just kind of moderate some of my portions that day. And it ends up being kind of like an auto-regulated weight strategy day to day, up or down, mainly just based on portion size, or maybe I'll add in an extra shake or pull out an extra shake or increase the ice cream serving or take it away or something like that. So that's kind of how my method um, is frequent weigh-ins. And then aside from that, the other strategy, the other thing that ends up being kind of necessary for this, I think, is um, for your diet to be relatively consistent. Um for most meals, uh, that makes it a lot easier to like just adjust simple portions and things like that. If you're eating like radically different stuff all the time and not tracking, I think that can make it more challenging. And so just as an example, typical daily diet, like my breakfast every day since about 2014 or 15 or something has involved, you know, oats and mixed with some whey. Um, the amount is somewhat made up based on the bowl that I'm using. Um, but I use the same bowl that ends up making it consistent. I don't weigh out the amount of oats or measure anything. Uh, and then lunch midday, um, will typically involve some kind of a lean protein source, chicken or fish, some vegetables and a, and a carbohydrate source, which this is one area that actually things have changed a, quite a bit. I would say in the past year, that's basically what lunch and dinner both look like. The carbohydrate sources traditionally were a lot more like rice. Um, I would feel like most of the time, but I have as a result of some heart disease history in my family, as well as myself previously having some high, higher blood lipid levels substituted and now basically eat some form of legume, typically lentils or chickpeas or black beans at every single like lunch or dinner that I make for myself if I'm not eating out. Um, and that's probably been over the course of the past year to year and a half or so. Um, so I make and consume a lot of lentils, I would say, alongside uh, uh, protein sources. And so that's probably also led to a sl slight decrease in the amount of meat consumption, just because I know I'm getting some additional protein from that. And that's good enough. Um, so relatively speaking, over the past couple of years, probably a decrease in, you know, red meat consumption, not eliminated, but a decrease, um, maybe a little bit of an increase in fish, probably about the same chicken, more, much more legumes, fibrous, uh, uh, carbohydrate and, and plant sources. That's lunch and dinner. And then I'll usually have ice cream pretty much every night, like some kind of a low fat ice cream source. And then if I need some extra calories, I'll just do like a shake. I'll blend up some like frozen berries, Greek yogurt and whey or something like that. And that's like most days if I'm not eating out. Um, so more or less, that's basically what the diet looks like. So you can tell across those meals, getting a fair amount of protein, getting a fair amount of fiber, not consuming boatloads of fat or adding, adding tons of fat or butter, things like that to my, to my meals, um, getting some fish in some nuts, um, and, and, uh, not going out of my way to consume tons of animal derived saturated fats based on the kind of previous uh, recommendations we've made. Austin bean Baraki. That's the new, new nickname. Um, yeah, I do think this ties in nicely to the next question about like, are there any go-to nutrition guidelines for one opting not to track calories while at maintenance? And so um, 
one resource that we published a while ago was the science of red meat intake. And at the end of that article, it kind of lays out some guidelines. The whole, the whole idea is we're trying to, you know, particularly if you're not tracking calories or tracking macros or using some sort of like quantity assessment, um, we need to otherwise set the dietary pattern up in a way that it results in you eating the right amount of food. And for this particular question, it says maintenance. So that means that your weight is staying the same. It's not going up. It's not going down. So if you're monitoring weight to uh, ensure that you're at maintenance, which I think is probably a good idea, the idea would be that your food environment, which is the uh, particularly in the household and occupational settings, the food you have access to on a day-to-day basis, and your eating environment, where you're actually sitting down or standing, in my case, because I do the bachelor breakfast where I stand up and eat, uh, only because that's just what I do. Uh that those are set up in a way that your eating behaviors lead to this sort of maintenance level intake. So yes, do we want you, we need you to eat the right amount of total daily energy intake, total daily calories. But to do that, we would like that each meal contain a good source, a good amount of lean dietary protein could be from a vegetarian or vegan source or an animal source. It's usually going to be about the size of your palm. Uh, We want you to have many servings of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and or legumes throughout the day. And a serving size is usually a fist sized portion there. Uh, And we don't really want you to have a lot of foods that have added sugars or added dietary saturated fat and generally are low in sodium. So these tend to be non-processed or minimally processed foods uh, that have only a few ingredients in them. And, uh, you know, if your dietary pattern looks like that, um, it's probably a result of your food environment, meaning the foods that you have in your home are only limited to that. You don't have the chips, the sweets, the cookies, the snacks, etc., that are highly processed, energy dense, hyper palatable, so super tasty foods that if you have them in the house, you're going to eat them. Yes, I eat, mental- I eat zero snacks ever between meals. <laughs> and they're not there. Look, yes, having correct. spent many times at Austin's house, I'm like, I wonder what's in the cupboard. And it's like <laughs> stuff that I'm not touching. Uh, no offense, you know, different dietary patterns. Yeah. But but if it's in the house, you're going to eat it. I mean, that's kind mm-hmm. of the rule of thumb here. And so the food environment plays a, a really uh, important role on what you end up eating. And then the eating environment, again, how you're actually when you're sitting down and eating the meal, if you're on your phone, if you're on your computer, if you're watching TV, if you're otherwise distracted, that actually com- you know interferes with the satiety signal. So how full you feel from a meal. So when people are like, just you need to think and be mindful of how full you are. It's like, mm, well, that can be manipulated based on your environment. So let's get the environmental stuff right. So your house should, an occupational setting ideally should be set up in a way where only health promoting foods are available to you lean proteins vegetables fruits legumes whole grains minimally processed foods etc if you have to have those foods that don't fit that criteria in the house make them less available put them in the back of the pantry keep them out of sight but i still think ultimately having them in the house is just like a ticking time bomb for most folks on the eating environment again the non-distracted eating that would that would be another behavioral modification uh via the environment to ultimately reach the appropriate energy intake And then if you're kind of building each meal around a palm-sized portion of lean protein, a fist-sized portion of fruits and or vegetables and uh, whole grains or legumes per meal, you're likely going to be okay. Your, your, your dietary pattern is, is going to automatically result for, for many folks in the appropriate amount of energy intake. 
Um, yes, there's inter-individual variability here. So people who uh, do all that or try their best and still are eating too much as manifested by their weight going up, for example, their waist circumference going up or ultimately continuing to carry too much body fat, those folks will need additional interventions. And then I'll say on the back end of that, if you desire to eat the hyper palatable, ultra processed foods, that's fine too. But you're going to have to work harder to get the appropriate energy intake per day. Your dietary RPE, as Austin has has coined, is going is likely going to go up. You're going to have to take more steps. You may have to track calories from time to time or pay more attention to the portions from time to time, just because those foods kind of hack the system, as it were, with respect to feeling full. You're going to eat the bag of peanut M&Ms and you'll be like, I, I'm still hungry. It's like, yeah, dude, they're engineered for that. It doesn't make them bad per se. It just makes it harder to uh, uh, feel full and, you know, kind of by default, end up eating the same amount of, you know, the correct amount of food. Uh, yesterday I was playing golf with Leonard, my dad, and he goes, Jordan, I have a problem. And I'm on the tee box. I'm like, dude, what the dad, what? Like he, like he's staring me in the face. I feel like he's gonna tell me something terrible. And he goes, I'm addicted to peanut M&Ms. And I was <laughs> like, what? <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> um, but in any case, the nutrition guidelines that we would kind of advise are at the end of the science of red meat article. I've linked them. Um, ideally you'd eat a protein, uh, lean protein at every meal, uh, diet high in fiber, low in added sugar, low in sodium, low in dietary saturated fat relatively. Um, and yeah, to make that happen automatically, you, you're probably going to build your meals around the way I described, have a good food environment to the extent that's modifiable for you and a good, uh, eating environment. Those would all be ways to do that. Um, Austin, what, what do you have to add to that? I concur. <laughs> Oh, all right. Fair enough. All right. Last question of this two-part Q&A series with Dr. Austin Baraki. What did you find the most interesting when going down the satiety literature rabbit hole? Austin, we can start with you if you if you have something. Uh, yeah, I think that one of the more interesting findings I, that is, I don't know that it's super practically um, useful right off the bat, but something that I think you may have shared with me, this concept of a gravitostat. Do you remember the gravitostat? That's exactly where I was going. I knew yes. it. <laughs> I was worried you were going to start and then take it. So there, <laughs> there, there we go. We can tag team it. The, this, this, this concept is that uh, there's something, I guess, physiologically that senses um, the, uh, these forces that are on our, on our body. And, uh, as a result, they've done experiments where they like surgically implant some kind of a weight, like in the abdomen of like rats, for example. And then as a result of that added weight, those added forces, it somehow gets, you know, those signals get transduced into, um, I guess, neural signals that then modify appetite signaling energy intake and result in some amount of weight loss. And so, um, you know, this has been trans uh, attempted to be translated in some, you know, or it, it is currently being attempted to be translated into some human research. So for example, there's like a registered trial of, uh, of them testing this gravitostat in humans by applying a weighted vest to patients who have undergone you know, bariatric or metabolic surgery, um, as a way to try to maintain some of those forces and hopefully like mitigate the risk of weight regain, for example, to try to keep some like 
continuous external forces. It's not like you're going to, you know, squat a set of five and then rack it. And then that alone will be sufficient. It's like this continuous added force, I suppose. Um, so who knows how this will pan out in humans, but just that finding in rats when they just like implant a lead weight in their, not probably not lead, but some kind of a weight in their, in their abdomen and then they lose weight as a result is like kind of pretty wild, uh, to think about. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically like they, they, they found a, a dose dependent relationship between the amount of load that they implanted in their abdomen and the amount of weight that they subsequently lost. Like there's almost like this mechanical um, sort of influence on satiety uh, or feelings of fullness and appetite. Um, so basically if you implanted a heavier weight, they would tend to eat less. Uh, and I think that it all goes back, it ties in nicely and it's a good way to wrap up this this podcast or these podcasts. The, the fundamental issue in obesity is a preservation of excess body fat um, that ultimately defies what should happen when excess body fat, excess energy is stored. What you would prefer to happen, uh, what you would think would happen if things, you know, the, the body's redundant homeostatic mechanisms were working uh, properly is that when excess energy is stored, you would uh, undergo processes that reduced appetite, increased satiety, and those excess energy stores were liberated for fuel. Um, and so the problem with obesity is a preservation or a breakdown in that regulation. And so it looks like there may be some mechanical stimulation or influence there that if you implant this heavier weight that people will, or well, in this case, rats will be fuller, have reduced appetite, eat less, and ultimately start liberating some of that excess fat, that excess energy stored. Um, and so it's pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, in obesity, the preservation of those um, that ultimately do not result in a reduced appetite and increased satiety. I mean, that's, that's the fundamental problem. So if you can fix the appetite, fix the satiety, uh, relationship, if you can fix that, then, uh, yeah, things, things are going to be thing you're going to liberate the excess energy stores and then the obesity will be, uh, fixed. All right, that's a wrap on the Barbell Medicine Podcast for this week, episode 183, part two, answering questions from the internet. Part one is uh, in the description below, so you guys can check that out. But before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review wherever you're getting this podcast from. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you the latest nuance in health and fitness. Once again, this is the Barbell Medicine Podcast, and we'll catch you here next week and every week right here. See ya. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then 
Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.